From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. On April 9, 1980, federal judge Harry Claiborne is seething. One day earlier, news broke that Claiborne was the target of a federal grand jury investigating allegations of his involvement in illegal wiretapping when he was a prominent defense lawyer. It is the same grand jury that federal strike force prosecutors are using in their relentless campaign against the mob in Las Vegas. Claiborne and his fellow federal judge in Las Vegas, Roger D. Foley, have been sparring in court with the strike force prosecutors over the Justice Department's aggressive tactics against organized crime. Claiborne has frustrated federal prosecutors hunting the mob. He's wise to their hard-charging ways and not afraid to block their efforts if he thinks they're being unfair. The judge also has been fighting with state gaming regulators over his decision to wrestle away control of the mob-ridden Aladdin Hotel. But word of the criminal investigation of Claiborne has taken the battle with the feds to an alarming level. Claiborne has had enough. He publicly calls the strike force a bunch of crooks and says he won't let prosecutors run roughshod over the Las Vegas community. B. Milan Brown, Nevada's U.S. attorney in 1980, is in Washington, D.C. at the time, sitting in the office of the Justice Department's criminal division chief. They're talking about an unrelated criminal case when they hear Claiborne's comments on television. And the head of the criminal division said, you want me to try it in front of him? We're not going to try it in front of him. And he, you know, you shut your mouth and you go home. Harry Claiborne is in the fight of his life. His impassioned defense to the U.S. Senate in 1986 demonstrated his powerful public speaking skills. I want to be honest with every member of this body. I would much rather right today be almost any place than here. But I could not walk away. I could not walk away because I have not violated a single law of the United States. I have not defrauded my government. I've heard the word corrupt used in these arguments by the House members today. I have not been corrupt in my office. And as long as that is so, I could not walk away and leave any impression that I may be guilty of something that I did not do. So I chose to fight, and I will fight here. And if I lose here, I will continue to fight. And I will continue to fight until my good name is cleared, until somewhere along the line, someone will listen and find out but once and for all what has happened to me and what has happened to my life. Because that is the only legacy I'll be able to leave, is a legacy of courage, because I've been stripped of everything else. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas. A true story about money. 
And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. He just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. I don't go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. And the battle to control the strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada because uh, it, it was on trial also. I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and state of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors, and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the Strip. Harry Claiborne was in a fight he couldn't win. In 1986, Claiborne became the first federal judge in 50 years to be impeached, convicted, and removed from the bench by Congress. Claiborne wound up there because he refused to resign after he was convicted in court of filing false tax returns in 1979 and 1980 and not reporting more than $106,000 in income as a defense lawyer. Claiborne blamed the discrepancies on bookkeeping errors and accused the government of mounting a vendetta against him. It was a long fall from grace for a man who had become a legal legend, not only in Las Vegas, but across the state. As a lawyer, Claiborne was a hard worker and a spellbinding speaker with a flair for drama in the courtroom. His good old boy Arkansas draw made him a natural charmer. Open up the door is and outside the courtroom, he was flamboyant, a heavy drinker and womanizer. His array of legal talents attracted the stars of his time, among them Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Judy Garland, and Carol Burnett. But he also represented mobster Bugsy Siegel, gaming pioneer Benny Binion, and notorious brothel baron Joe Conforti, who eventually wound up in trouble with the IRS. Claiborne's association with Conforti would lead to his downfall. As a young man, Lawrence Semenza, who was Nevada's U.S. attorney between 1975 and 1977, recalls watching Claiborne in court. First time I saw Harry Claiborne, I believe was in 1964 when I was at University of Nevada, Reno and he was defending a person alleged to have murdered his companion at a trailer park in Reno, Nevada. It was one of those things that someone said, you've got to see this lawyer from Las Vegas. And uh, Judge Claiborne defended this gentleman and picked at the inconsistencies and the failures of law enforcement to appropriately investigate the crime and he was able to draw that out of the witnesses and create a story that he was able to basically enrapture a jury with, and the gentleman was acquitted. But it was mesmerizing. But Kleber never really got a chance to establish himself as a judge. He was too busy fighting with prosecutors and fending off allegations of wrongdoing. His Senate impeachment trial drew national attention. 
David Chesnoff was a member of Claiborne's defense team, which was led by Oscar Goodman, the man who inherited Claiborne's reputation as the top criminal lawyer in town. During the impeachment proceedings, Claiborne's skills were on display. I remember exactly what he said. He told the senators that he was being pursued by the government like a wounded caribou being chased by a pack of wolves. And I'll, I'll never forget it. In fact, Oscar and I used to call him Boo after that. Uh, but that was a heavy moment. And he did it in his kind of southern western drawl. He said, I, I was being pursued like a wounded caribou by a pack of bloodthirsty wolves. It was really dramatic, but it was from the heart. And he felt it and meant it. It was a terrible ending for a man who had contributed so much to Nevada. I spent six years covering the Claiborne case while a reporter. The wiretapping allegations against Claiborne fizzled, but confidential documents showing alleged government misconduct had been linked in an unprecedented deal to bring then-fugitive brothel boss Joe Conforti back to Nevada to accuse Claiborne of taking more than $100,000 in bribes. Conforti had fled to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, but he got homesick and he knew he had to get back into the good graces of the government. Claiborne was his ticket back. The timing was perfect for the FBI's new special agent in charge in Las Vegas, Joseph Yablonski. He was looking for dirt on Claiborne. Yablonski was determined to break up the Las Vegas establishment that he believed had allowed the mob to flourish on the Strip. Claiborne talked about Yablonski's effort to go after him during his testimony before the Senate impeachment panel. I knew that my friends uh, were being uh, questioned concerning me and my lifestyle and my history and every conceivable thing. And of course, I had known for a long time and frankly uh, misjudged that the uh, head of the Las Vegas uh, Office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation somehow took personal dislike to me. I think, even though he was a very ambitious man, and he came into uh, Las Vegas with an idea of, uh, as he said, planting the American flag in the Nevada desert. And I think that his idea of doing that was to uh, get rid of uh, a lot of people. And unfortunately for me, I was, uh, I believe, foremost in uh, his ambitious path. And I think somewhere along the way that he uh, recognized that he was gonna have to uh, deal with me in order to be able to accomplish the things he wanted. I was part of a team of reporters that investigated allegations of Justice Department misconduct in the Claiborne investigation. That included allegations that Yablonski and federal prosecutors had struck a deal with the devil, Joe Conforti, who for years had used proceeds from his Mustang ranch in northern Nevada to corrupt politicians and break the law. Yablonski was backed by the highest levels of the FBI and the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., and seemed to have gotten very comfortable at the helm of the local FBI office. We uncovered an array of alleged misconduct by Yablonski. He had interfered in the Nevada Attorney General's race to defeat a candidate he felt was more in line with his anti-mob crusade. He kept $40,000 that was mistakenly credited to his account at a savings and loan association before auditors uncovered the error three years later. 
Instead of reporting the mistake, Yablonski opened a cash management account with the money at a local brokerage firm. Eventually, he returned the money. Yablonski also tried to persuade Las Vegas casino owners to buy seafood from a company employing his wife. Former U.S. Senator Harry Reid, who chaired the Nevada Gaming Commission, says Yablonski was a goofball. He was going to shows using his name just so he could get caught for shows. He was really not, he was not a good guy. For the most part, Yablonski escaped punishment other than a censure from then-FBI Director William Webster in Washington for lying about getting involved in the Attorney General's race. The Justice Department was reluctant to soil Yablonski's reputation in the middle of his mission against organized crime. By far, the worst case of alleged government misconduct stemmed from the Conforti deal. Yablonski and federal prosecutors negotiated an agreement to give Conforti millions of dollars in tax breaks, immunity from prosecution, and a commitment to resolve his criminal troubles. The reputations of several people blocking that deal were destroyed. The biggest name was Gerald Swanson, the head of the IRS in Nevada. Swanson saw the flaws in the deal and wanted Conforti in prison, but he was pushed out of the way and transferred to another state. Former U.S. Attorney B. Milan Brown says he was skeptical of Conforti's allegations. I got a feeling that it, Conforti made up his story about Harry. Now, I'm not saying Harry didn't visit the whorehouse, but uh, I don't think Harry took money from Conforti. Steve Stein was one of Oscar Goodman's partners at the time. He was among many defense lawyers who found fault with the Conforti deal. Harry Claiborne was a thorn in the side of federal law enforcement and federal prosecutors. And they targeted him wrongfully, in my opinion. I don't care what the jury said. They used the testimony of a gentleman whose credibility is about the ninth level of Dante's hell. Stein says Claiborne was beloved in the defense community. He always fought for the underdog. He always fought for the rights of people who were charged criminally in the federal and state system. And he did it in a proper, outstanding way. And he was a terrific human being. Coming up, Harry Claiborne goes to trial in federal court in Reno on charges of taking a bribe from Joe Conforti. But the trial doesn't go the government's way. We'll be back after a break. At Claiborne's first trial in April 1984, Conforti testified under oath that he bribed Claiborne to quash subpoenas issued to prostitutes in a voter fraud investigation and to help Conforti get a federal conviction reversed. But the jury had trouble believing Conforti and reported it was hopelessly deadlocked. After eight days of deliberations, a mistrial was declared. Embarrassed by Conforti's poor showing in court, the government dropped all of the charges against Claiborne related to the brothel boss. They tried him only on tax charges at his second trial. Without Conforti in the picture, federal prosecutors had an easier time presenting their case. Claiborne was convicted. Two years later, in July 1986, the House unanimously passed four articles of impeachment against Claiborne stemming from the Reno conviction. By the time of Claiborne's October impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, Yablonski had retired from the FBI. Federal and state officials also had cleaned up most of the strip. 
Mafia leaders in Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee, and Cleveland were convicted of skimming from strip casinos. And the Chicago mob's overseer here, Anthony Spalatro, had been murdered gangland style. Harry Claiborne was in the middle of serving a two-year sentence at a federal prison camp in Alabama. David Chesnoff recalls what it was like to be in the well of the Senate defending the man he revered as an attorney and judge. It was absolutely surreal, to be honest with you, but every time I watch a State of the Union or I watch anything from the Senate floor, I kind of flash back. For me, it was being part of history. They brought him to court in handcuffs, and it was really very difficult to take. The marshals that were guarding him were a special unit. And I think they really bought into the idea that Claiborne had former clients or friends in Las Vegas who were maybe dangerous people. So he had this incredible security, like somebody was going to break him out or something. Eventually, Claiborne charmed them so much that the handcuffs didn't stay on and Claiborne liked chili dogs. They let us get him chili dogs on the brakes. But it was amazing how intense an experience that was. But at the time, Oscar and I were the first civilians in years who had ever been on the actual floor of the U.S. Senate when the vote was being taken, because Oscar was permitted to give an opening statement. I'd like to give you a tidbit, if I might, as to the factual background as to what was existing in the Las Vegas, Nevada community at the time that Judge Claiborne purportedly engaged in these acts of willful misconduct. Before Judge Claiborne even went on the bench, there was a war going on between the Nevada judiciary and representatives of the federal strike force. Since this was the first time in years the Senate had tried an impeachment case, it was somewhat unsure about how to handle it. And because the Senate had other pressing matters important to the country, it decided not to give Claiborne a full trial. Instead, it appointed a 12-member panel to hear evidence beforehand. Order. Some of the brightest young members of the Senate were appointed to the panel, like Democrat Al Gore Jr., who went on to become vice president, and Mitch McConnell, who now leads the Republicans in the Senate. Then Vice President George H.W. Bush presided over the trial. Mr. Goodman will now be heard on Judge Claiborne's motion to declare Senate impeachment rule 11 unconstitutional. I made more than a half dozen trips to Capitol Hill to cover the impeachment proceedings, and it became obvious that there was little interest in hearing about the alleged vendetta against Claiborne. The judge brought it up during the Senate trial. Claiborne spoke with passion just a few feet from the senators, right in front of then-Republican Majority Leader Robert Dole and Democratic Leader Robert Byrd. But he hardly got a reaction. Some senators didn't even appear to be paying attention to Claiborne as he pleaded his case. If I had been the average citizen, and if it hadn't been that I had made certain people a little angry at me along the way, if I had kept my mouth shut, and I had not said some things about the strike force that I said, then in all probability, nothing would have ever occurred with reference to my return except a simple audit but no audit was ever made of my returns. The first thing I know is I'm being audited by the grand jury. My taxes have been submitted to the grand jury. And in Reno, Nevada, 
Then, Claiborne talked about Joe Conforti. And then all of a sudden they go into Brazil and they acquire one Joseph Conforti. And as Mr. Goodman had told you, they gave him a tax break of his life by reducing his taxes some millions of dollars, wiping out all of his criminal slate but 15 months. And he brought him here and they began to investigate me then uh, for bribery. And they tried me for two counts of bribery. They couldn't make a case against me then either. They charged me and tried me for wire fraud by telephone, and nobody to this day has been able to figure out what that charge was about. They offered little or no evidence of that. Claiborne also talked about being a judge. And I have no special message here today to you. The only thing that I can say to you is that I have been, I think, a fine judge. And I have brought to the bench, I thought, a sense of fairness it was unusual in the judicial system. Claiborne said he always stood up for the little guy, the average citizen who couldn't match the massive resources of the federal government. But there were always concerns within the government about Claiborne. Did his heavy drinking cloud his judgment on the bench? Was he too aware of the FBI's tough tactics needed to flush out the mob? Federal agents also were concerned about Claiborne's ties to Horseshoe Club owner Benny Binion. Before he set up shop in Las Vegas, the gambling legend had a notorious reputation in Texas, even links to murder cases. Claiborne would have lunch with Binion nearly every day. I often saw him with Binion and his sons at their large round table in the back of the Horseshoe's popular coffee shop. Then something happened in the war on organized crime in the early 1980s that raised more suspicions about Claiborne. The feds were investigating how cash was being skimmed from the Stardust and Fremont casinos and being transported by couriers to mafia bosses in Chicago and elsewhere in the Midwest. They got a warrant to search two reputed underworld figures in Las Vegas they suspected were carrying cash back to the bosses. But instead of cash, they found cookies. Yes, cookies. Former Strike Force prosecutor Stan Hunterton was involved in the year-long investigation. He recalls that the mob had set up an elaborate clandestine operation to get the money back to Chicago. It involved multiple couriers, the use of multiple cars, and multiple airline flights from multiple airports. A travel agent's nightmare. And then came the month we decided to attempt to make the interception of the money when it changed hands in Las Vegas to the Chicago Courier. And much to our great disappointment, I think probably for many of us, our biggest disappointment in the course of our work in law enforcement, Yes, the package contained cookies, not money, and forever became known as the cookie caper. Where was the leak coming from? Well, some people expressed a concern that Judge Claiborne had somehow tipped somebody off that the search was going to be done. Hunterton says the concern was mainly coming at the time from the FBI agents who worked the case. There's no question, I think, as well as I can remember back, that Judge Claiborne had access to at least some of that information because it may have been in an affidavit for electronic surveillance 
or an affidavit for a search warrant. It may have been in both. But Hunterton says he doesn't necessarily subscribe to the Claiborne leak theory. Some of the FBI agents have since changed their minds too. Personally, I thought we tried to go a bridge too far. The surveillance had taken too many months, gone on too long, and we got burned, as they say in the profession. I think, not unlike the Hoffa case, you could get a very lively discussion even yet today about what went wrong. There are other theories, including the possibility that Frank Lefty Rosenthal, the man running the Stardust skimming operation for the mob, could have been the leak. Rosenthal turned out to be a secret FBI informant in those days. Was he playing both sides? Still ahead, one FBI agent was definitely pissed off about the great cookie caper. That was local FBI boss Joseph Yablonski, the king of Sting, who was taken for a ride. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, season two, continues after a word from our sponsors. Defense lawyer Steve Stein represented Stardust casino manager Bobby Stella, one of the people arrested by FBI agents during the failed search for the skim. Stein had a little fun with the FBI miscue. He asked the federal magistrate judge to order the FBI to return the cookies to Stella. Next thing I knew, I was sitting at my desk, minding my own business, doing work. Telephone operator up front buzzed me and said, there's a Joe Yablonski on the phone for you, which kind of surprised me because I had never received a phone call from Joe Yablonski up to that point. So I answered and I said, this is Steve Stein. In a loud, booming, nasty way, he said, I want you over here in the next 10 minutes. And I said to him, and this I specifically remember, Mr. Yablonski, I am not one of your agents, and you cannot order me around like that. You have no power over me. If you want to arrest me, send an agent or two. If you just want me over there to chat, ask a little bit nicer. And there was a pause on the other end of the phone. And he said, okay, can you please come over to my house within the next 10 or 15 minutes? I said, sure, be happy to. So I stopped what I was doing, hopped in my car, and drove over to the FBI office over on East Charleston at the time. Once there, Stein says he was escorted to Yablonski's office, where Yablonski and a half dozen other agents were sitting. I said, oh. and he said, I want to know who the leak is in our office that these were cookies and not anything else. I said, a leak? I said, I have no clue. He said, Stein, cut the crap. Somebody had to leak this in order for there to be cookies in that box. I said, did you open the box? And he said, yeah, and there were cookies in it. I said, okay, Mr. Stella wants the cookies back. I filed a motion. He said, we'll give you the cookies back, but I still want to know who leaked it. I said, nobody leaked it to my knowledge. I don't know. And he said, you're no help. I said, I'm not here to help. I'm here to get the cookies back. He said, all right, you can leave. The FBI returned the cookies to Stein, and he gave them to Stella. And Stella was released without charges being filed. 
As for the notion that Claiborne had tipped off the mob, Stein and other lawyers like David Chesnoff say there was no chance of that ever happening. Claiborne certainly had his detractors within federal law enforcement, but he did not always rule against them. Back in 1981, I broke a story about Anthony Spilatro's pending federal indictment. Other media picked up on it. So did Oscar Goodman, who also was defending Spilatro. Goodman had long been accusing the feds of misconduct in their sweeping investigation of Spilatro, so the story gave him a chance to take one more swipe at them. He filed a motion seeking to dismiss the indictment on grounds the government had unlawfully leaked out the word. As part of that motion, he subpoenaed me and other reporters in an effort to try to prove the information was coming from the feds. Guess who was handling the case? Claiborne. So the day came when Claiborne held a hearing on Goodman's motion. When Goodman called me to the witness stand, Claiborne went over every paragraph with me, each time asking me to identify the source. Luckily in Nevada, we have a shield law that allows reporters to keep their sources confidential. After I refused to give up my sources, Claiborne decided to respect the law and not hold me in contempt. That ended Goodman's push to get the Spalacho case dismissed and handed the government a victory. But Claiborne's fate was sealed. Eventually, the government indicted him in the Conforti case and then convicted him of the tax charges. The Senate also convicted him of three of the four articles of impeachment. A two-thirds majority vote on each count was needed to convict. He was not vindicated. The grueling government investigation and the pressure-packed impeachment proceedings were simply too much for Claiborne to overcome. Defense lawyer Thomas Pitaro was a Claiborne supporter. I think what it showed, it showed is how, on the one hand, powerful uh, the government can be when it throws its resources against the person. Uh, even someone as esteemed as uh, Judge Claiborne. And it also shows the degree of cruelty of which they can, they can approach it. Quite truthfully, uh, Judge Claiborne didn't have a chance. The whole system was against them. It, it really was a very sad time, I think, in the legal community, especially in Nevada. Claiborne was removed from the bench and served the remaining months of his prison sentence. He found some consolation when the Nevada Supreme Court in 1987 reinstated him to the state bar. At that time, after all the, uh, the emotion was sort of out of it and all the hoop-de-hoo and the, all the things that were going on, that, that on a more reflective time, I think, I think that reflected that, you know, maybe the system made a bad mistake in what they did and that readmitting him into the bar was uh, the thing to do. Claiborne lived out the rest of his years practicing law, mostly for the Horseshoe Club and the Binion family. On January 19, 2004, at the age of 86, Claiborne stopped fighting. Suffering from cancer, a heart condition, and Alzheimer's, he took his own life. Coming up in the final episode of season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, we'll look at whether Wayne Newton was successful running the Aladdin Hotel after the mob was banished, and why the troubled resort ultimately wound up as a pile of rubble. And how did Nevada regulators come out of the era of organized crime in the late 1970s and early 1980s? Can the mob come back to the Strip? Former U.S. Senator Harry Reid, who chaired the Nevada Gaming Commission in that era, says he learned that you can never say never. 
They are so clever. Remember, we, we thought we had everything under control. This has been Part 7, Season 2 of Mobbed Up, a production for the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman. Field and audio recording by Larry Muir and audio engineering by Greg Conway. Audio of Harry Claiborne was taken from C-SPAN coverage of his 1986 impeachment proceedings in the U.S. Senate. If you have feedback, email me at jgerman at reviewjournal.com. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, ProGroup Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.